Hello, everyone. Welcome to Risk Rounder. Emerging technologies are revolutionizing almost every aspect of society. The rapidly emerging technological tsunami in all human domains has leveled the playing field and brought countries an unprecedented possibility of progress. Now, when the world is undergoing a profound and lasting shift in the relative balance of power due to geopolitics of emerging technologies and the changing power dynamics, the question is, how are countries competing? How is India competing? The reason is, India became an independent nation in 1947. The journey from 1947 to 1950, when it became a republic, and onwards after a long history of external rulers, created complex challenges for India at all levels. At the same time, India's Vedic heritage and civilization that flourished on the Indian subcontinent laid down not only the foundation of Hinduism, but also a very strong advanced age of technology. It is documented that the contribution of ancient India towards science and technology ranged from mathematics, astronomy, medicine, and a lot more. Now, Dr. Partha Ghosh, who has been analyzing economic and social landscapes over the past several decades, has recently published a book on India in which he has called for a reset. Dr. Partha has graciously accepted our invitation to give a talk on his book and help us understand why India needs to take a pause and reset. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Partha Ghosh on Risk Roundup. We look forward to your talk, Partha. The floor is yours. Thank you, Jayashreth. Thanks to the Risk Group for organizing this uh, particular session. Uh, the book uh, is actually a compendium of a series of lectures and speeches and articles that I wrote, I delivered in a period of 1985 till about 2019 uh, on nation building, on how the country like India, which you rightly pointed out is indeed very complex, has got multiple dimensions of, uh, if you will, uh, possibilities, as well as multiple dimensions of challenges. Uh, I try to understand India from those multiple vectors, if you will, on one side, the spiritual vector, on the other side, the economic vector, third, intellectual, emotional, cultural, there's so many different vectors. Now, just to give you a little bit of summary uh, of the book, it was basically brings together, uh, I would say five different messages, which kind of fermented in my mind uh, in this period of almost 35 years. The first message I feel is becoming more and more relevant right now, which is very universal in nature, nothing to do with India, everything to do with the world, but as a result to do a lot to do with India, is the importance of reviving what I would call the spiritual vector of the civil development of the civilization. Indeed, over the last 500 years, uh, thanks to the development of capitalism, the way technologies have developed, the relationship between nations, between people, between com communities have become too transactional. That uh, it is, uh, it almost appears like we are all the time playing a zero-sum game 
that some people would win, some people would lose, and indeed that's what Charles Darwin's survival of the fittest points towards. That means some, someone is more fit than others, which means someone would win and someone else would lose. But that is, I don't think, the right way to look at the evolution process because evolution has also happened, not only on the process of natural selection, but in the process of collaboration. And when I look at the ancient philosophies, not only the philosophies which developed in India, the Vedic philosophy, the Confucius philosophy, even the Greek and the Roman philosophies, and then the German philosophy, and the philosophies that fermented during the time of John Locke in Scotland and England, there was an element of collaboration and spiritualism. They talked all the time about theology, about divinity, about understanding the nature with the development of the human being. That I feel with the development of science and technology and how science and technology led to materialism has gotten to certain extent compromised. As you know, when the first university of the world was established, which was in Taxila, in India, which is 500 BC, the focus was understanding nature, understanding planets, understanding uh, uh, the human anatomy, and as a result, mathematics. And then Nalanda, after 1000 years, 580, is still the second university of the world, focused on maybe a bit more on ism, like Vedicism, Buddhism, as well as mathematics. And then when you look at Oxford and Cambridge, the initial focus was theology. Similarly, when I look at Harvard uh, University, the initial focus was divinity school. So all the way through the university education centers of learning focused on spiritual development and spiritual development, not in the context of religion, understanding the inner soul and how it relates with the outer universe. Now, unfortunately, as these universes developed, the focus became more physics, uh, mathematics, chemistry, which is good, but that led to new kind of industries. And we started moving towards what we call division of labor, command and control organization structure. Someone makes the decisions for you. And that has created a hierarchical organization around the world. Some people are superior, some people are inferior. So I feel, one of the messages of the book, could we bring back some of the original concept of, if you will, spiritual development along with intellectual and physical and emotional development of civilization. So that is the first message. And that applies to India, that applies to China, that applies to Japan, that applies to the United States. But fortunately in India, much of the last 7,000 years, Indeed, last 1300 years was uh, when foreigners ruled India. But if you go back the much of the previous 5,000 years, because it's an old country, it is full of knowledge, full of intellectual ferment, which India should think of tapping into to offer an alternative model of development to the world. So that's the first message. Very different from what we are doing today. The second message, which many of my economist friends may not welcome, but I feel the discipline of economics needs to be reimagined. 
if I look at the way economics developed in the last uh, 350 years following Adam Smith's famous book, Wealth of Nation, it was highly uh, inspired by the thinking that was evolving, particularly in England and Scotland, which was, you know, the concept of physics was coming into play. The laws of nature was de developed through the eyes of physics. And then what the economists tried to do is to take the same thinking of physics into the thinking of uh, economics, which is what kind of incentives would lead people to work. It became a very kind of a transactional relationship. In risks and rewards, incentives and penalties, which will drive human behavior. Now, as you well know, how human behavior shapes depends upon the culture of a region, depends upon the ecosystem of the region. So as the economic laws developed, its impact on the world has been quite limited because as you know, 75% of the people are still very poor. 25%, maybe 20% of the world is economically advanced and much of that is where much of these economic laws were born because these laws are basically product of the cultures. So I personally feel the whole concept of Adam Smith, which was important in the time of industrial revolution, the power of self-interest, the survival of the fittest has to be re-examined. And I would rather try to use the word, not power of self-interest, but power of self-expression where we give everyone an opportunity to express their inner talent, as opposed to self-interest. By definition, self-interest means I care about myself, not of the bigger society around me. But power of self-expression means I want to express my gift, I want to bring my value to society, and in the process, develop a social conscious, in the process, create an ecosystem which is more fit. So fitness of the wider ecosystem is more important than the survival of the fittest. So there's a fundamental departure in the economic thinking that we need to bring uh, to shape the 21st century, not only in India, but all over the world. So some of the messages are very universal, but then I say India is an opportunity because India is still at the early stage of economic development. We do not have to discard uh, much of the old thinking because 70% of the people are still very poor. Could we focus on the 70% to create the new economic model and then the gradually the other 30% would get influence? So that is the second message. The third message of the book is what I'm using the word central economic nervous system of a nation. Often we forget, you know, a nation is basically a collection of a lot of different emotions, instincts, which come together in a collective fashion. Some countries it works where all the needles are pointed in the same direction. People have the same instincts, same values, <clears throat> same work ethics. But in many countries, particularly a country like India, where there are about 1,610 languages, where there are different cultures, all of them have got very unique attributes I think it's important that there is a economic nervous system which brings the softer aspects, that's why I'm using the word nervous system of society together
towards a common purpose. So someone in Assam, for example, with the extreme eastern part of India, versus someone who is extreme western part in Dharaka and Gujarat. Obviously, they're coming from very different environments, but yet they're bound together under one, what we I call the Vedic philosophy. Now, how to create that bonds between different regions and create a system, which I'm calling the nervous system, which connects the vision of the country with the strategic uh, programs of the country, with the day-to-day -day, uh, lives of each and every individual in the villages of the country. And that is a system that we have to design. We don't have that. And I think in a complex country that, like India needs that system in place. The fourth message is even more powerful. Uh, yes, as you know, you are in the risk group and you have very successfully built up this group. The risk management has been in terms of uh, financial engineering. Uh, we have developed uh, different kinds of mechanisms of designing options uh, to basically offset risk or enable a liquidity of capital. And I think we have done a great job, uh, which we call financial engineering, some people call fintech. But I feel there's a need to think of human tech, which is fluidity of global IQ, as opposed to uh, capital only, financial capital. Liquidity of capital is important, but liquid fluidity of global IQ is even more important. And what do I mean by that? You know, People who are very successful, you know, I've visited Davos several times. We go to the Knowledge Economic Forum. We go to the World Economic Forum and in Davos. We exchange ideas. But that is for the top 0.01% of the uh, population which come and exchange ideas. And then they go back to their job. But the world has not really changed. In fact, today the world is much worse off than it was 30 years ago. If you look at what's going on in Europe right now, in name of Ukraine, Russia challenges, the supply chain problem, the tension between China and the United States, one can go on and on and on. So we have come to a point where we have to think of how to enable networking of people at the base of the pyramid, a farmer in Chile, with a farmer in China, with a farmer in Cuba, they're all working on their problems, but how could they interact with each other would be very important. So the best practices from China for a certain kind of crop could be shared with the best practices of a certain kind of crop in Chile. And in the process, they benefit from each other. And today is possible, how? I would speak in Spanish in Chile. The Chinese person would speak in Mandarin, but the cloud would, through an artificial intelligence would allow when I speak in Chinese and you speak in Gujarati, you will hear me in Gujarati and you speak to me in Gujarati, I'll hear in Bengali. In other words, this is the first time in the history of the world we could enable the networking of people who are really doing the work, based on the pyramid, not networking of people who are at the top of the pyramid. And that's what I'm calling the fluidity of global IQ, something I truly believe in. And that, if managed, will give to new kind of ism, which is beyond socialism and capitalism, which I'm calling cellularism. Small cells of economic activity, small villages, they will all interact with each other. And the centers of economic excellence would be the small villages, not the centers 
of cities. You know, that was the industrial model where economies of scale was important. Big cities like London were created. Uh, but the city I grew up was the second city in the world once upon a time, Calcutta. Then uh, Tokyo got created, Singapore got created. Now we are talking about Qatar and Abu Dhabis of the world. But the point is, how about going back to small villages, making the villages the center of economic activities. And that's what I'm calling cellularism or capitalism 2.0. That is the, uh, I think the fourth or the fifth message. Then the final message I think is extremely important that when I look at the microeconomic world, so far it was macroeconomic, the companies, corporates, you know, the corp much of the development of the corporate organizational models has been the product of industrial revolution. So when you think of a company, we immediately ask, who is the CEO? What is the next level? It's a very hierarchical structure, which was good when we are talking about division of labor, we were talking about time and motion study, when we we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, breaking up responsibilities into different parts. But now we are in a different knowledge economy where everyone's emotional and intellectual instinct has to be firstly inspired, leveraged, collaborated, synergized, and in the process created, create an enlightened organization. So a country like India, particularly when we have, if you go to a company, uh, let's say someone has come from Kerala to work in the company in Delhi. Now, unless he speaks English or Hindi, would he would be considered illiterate mm -hmm. in, in Delhi. Vice versa, someone from Delhi goes to Kerala and if the language there is Malayalam, the, anyone who doesn't speak Malayalam would consider illiterate. So in a country with so many different languages, we have to create a model where anyone in his own uh, her, his or her own mother tongue feels he belongs to the system. And that's where I think we have to develop what I'm calling new organizational model, which inspires and involves, doesn't command and control which does not uh, uh, just check, but catalyzes new ideas, create a new kind of work and decision-making ethics where multiple languages could belong. And again, the role of the cloud and our AI could play a very, very important role. So that is my overall messages that comes out in the book. As you could sense, all of them applies to India, but they equally apply to any other country. But I've put positioned it in the context of India because, as you know, in the next 25 years, India would reach its 100th anniversary. And I feel India is still at the very, very early stage of economic development. There are a lot of challenges. I hope in the next 25 years, at least, we can create the right platform so the next 100 years would be a trajectory similar to what Japan enjoyed uh, between uh, 1950 to 1990. So I think we have to be where Japan was in 1950 or 45, where we should be in 2050 or 2047, so that the next 50 years indeed becomes a very dynamic period in India's economic development. No, wonderful. I think uh, 
you have identified some critical you know areas where we should focus on and looking at uh, the spirituality the point that you first made the spiritual factor that is something that the world has never focused on while india has focused on the spirituality and uh, there are many many people in all over india who are very determined to increase their spiritual awareness that age of enlightenment that we need to make the next jump from the technological jump from where we are in the prospect of you know where we are going like artificial intelligence we are developing but unless we increase our consciousness unless we increase the enlightenment uh, and achieve enlightenment we will not truly understand the consciousness and we will truly not be able to build a very conscious ai so it is all interconnected so india is at a very unique position where there are millions of saints millions of people who are on the path of you know enlightenment and they all can play a very significant role in helping us understand the true nature of consciousness and once we understand the true nature of consciousness we can rebuild all the systems all over the world in a manner that it's inclusive and includes everyone across nations not only india but everyone across nations because that inclusivity is so very important for us to build the next level of you know systems where nobody is left behind it, in despite you know what language they speak their race religion uh, how they look you know any all of those variables where the world is so focused on right now they will become irrelevant so i think what you are pointing out the journey that we all need to go to uh, go on i think it's very important the question is whether any country you take it india or you take you know china or any other country whether decision makers focus on that I, that is going to be a very tough challenge because decision makers are not going to focus on uh, spirituality because to them it doesn't matter and that's a very shallow thinking that we are going to face as an obstacle but the beauty of while you were you know mentioning uh, your uh you know observations and where we need to go i was thinking about it uh, that yes we have focused over the years on the darwinian concept of survival of the fittest now that is that the right way to go down that is one thing the second is you know we have uh understood the information system we have defined and designed information system that things that the world is linear that we take decisions uh in a linear manner that if something happens it's yes or no and there is no other uh you know aspect or there are no other vectors that play a role in that but it's not linear you know if we look at the ancient india and our ancient heritage we have always considered that you know decision information uh within and above you know it is not just linear that it goes you know 01010 like that so the tools that we have developed has brought us you know up to here but where we need to go requires very different kinds of tools 
so we need to build new model to build new models we need a new language we need new information system uh, we need uh, entirely new way of doing things and that is a journey we all have to go on if we want to create human species as a multiplanetary species because there is a lot that needs to be done to reach that end goal so there are a lot of challenges but the beauty is there are a lot of devoted scientists all across nations who are very focused on solving these problems and we should be hopefully able to uh, go on that journey but for now looking at the different aspects of uh, all the countries that you have observed and all the countries you have studied including india uh, if you look at their development it has uh, whatever you know years their journey has gone if you look at india it has been for almost you know 70 years we'll be getting close to 100 very soon like you know you have mentioned in your book so what can the decision makers learn today to be- how to better the tomorrow you have identified the problems but looking at the different aspects how would you convince the decision makers to better the tomorrow how how should they go on that journey can you suggest ways to address the cultural issues uh, related to work ethics management discipline integrity leadership uh, which are becoming a drag racism in all of this which are becoming a drag on socio economic development as we see not only in india but even in the united states yeah. good question let me um, respond uh, firstly thank you very much for uh, providing a very articulate summary of what i shared with you uh, i feel you know there are moments in history when uh, we have to step back and we have not yet shown such capability uh in the last at least as you know i don't know but if i look at the history for the last 2000 years it has been a pretty a pretty linear extension of the past into the future we have systematically made progress we came out of the agriculture into industrial world now we are into the information world again at the top 20% if you go to a village in africa their lifestyle perhaps have not changed in last thousand years similarly there are many villages in india if you go deep inside madhya pradesh or some interior parts of gujarat even mp uh, life has not changed for them now if we do believe that we need a new for way to approach the future i think the comp- your group like risk group and there could be maybe five or six such groups it need not be hundreds who should start uh, sort of bringing to the attention the need for a new model and we have one uh is that discussion should be you know where i get very disappointed with the discussions that happen at davos it is very linear they in fact they are reactive in nature you know when the problems occur they say what shall we do a good thought leadership group should be able to anticipate the future and then be able to talk about issues in uh, in anticipation of the problems that they have to solve 
So I feel one thing I would like to do with your help is to promote these seven points that we discussed that we have the tools because you know when I talk about AI, talk about village-centric development, it is possible. You know, if you look at what uh, our friend Elon Musk is doing now, he has moved to your state, Texas. Uh, what he's doing with uh, the energy transition. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we need some, and then I'm talking about artificial intelligence as a way where everyone who only speaks the mother tongue feels proud. You know, the biggest problem in India is that unless you speak English, you are considered illiterate. But if you go to Japan, most of the successful Japanese businessmen I met, they hardly speak in English. They do have created brands all over the world, but in their mother tongue. Same in Korea, same in China, same in Germany, same in Italy, same in Sweden. So I think time has come that we have to really believe, we have to empower people in their own mother tongue and let them get a chance to express. So I feel India has a do, uh, actually an opportunity. I see being poor, it is an advantage because people, 70% to 80% of the people are not suffering from the bad habits of the past. In America, I cannot think without an air conditioner, without a refrigerator, without a car, without uh, a lot of things because we have become victim of the products of the 20th century industrialization model, right? But in India, unfortunately, 70% of the people cannot afford these things. So let's, that's a white sheet of paper. So if Indian government now says this is white sheet, we will develop uh, India, which is very unique to India, taking advantage of its Vedic philosophy, taking advantage of its diversity, the sunshine, the water systems, the agricultural diversity, the uh, cultural diversity. Uh, India could offer a model. But then the prime minister has to believe it is no longer following the Western model or following the Eastern model. We'll develop our own model, which is very unique in nature by leveraging technologies intelligently. Use AI not to automate uh, the transportation system of a Delhi Metro, but use the AI to have a Keralite speak to an Assamese villager in their own mother tongue. Why aren't we not taking on such problems? It could be done. All that, uh, you know, so I speak in my mother tongue, you speak in mother, but we hear each other. Sure, and that sure. Is, yeah. Yes, you make a good point on that. And I think there are several technology companies who are developing such capabilities that irrespective of what language you speak in, it will be translated into the language you understand. So that, that those developments are already happening. But if we speak specifically about the languages, all these languages are human created. All of these languages that we have created. Uh, but the, this is these languages are not the one in which the universe speaks. The universe speaks and listens and understands the geometric language. Universe, the language is geometry. So the language that we are all speaking is verbal that we are, it's a human created, but that is not the language of the universe. Beautiful. Absolutely. So, so if we really truly want to understand 
beyond what you and i you know think and speak beyond what anybody speaks uh, in during a conversation what actually our consciousness inner consciousness is trying to tell us we will need to lean on the geometric language the universe's language and we'll have to develop that we'll have to advance that while there are there is a background you know already developed there is a long way we have to go but that is where we'll need to focus to truly integrate every single human on in the world and the other point that you made about you know the, the ism about that you know taking village uh, you know considering that as a unit center 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 uh, even for that what is going to be required is the integration that means that if we look at a nation country, any country right now what is it made of there are many different components to it it is uh, the government then uh, the corporations the industries businesses the education and the you know ngos the nations government industries organizations academia those are broadly doing different roles for the optimal functioning of a country and of course there you know military and all of that uh, is a part of the you know we are considering as government mm-hmm. so if we consider village as a unit then all these villages all across different you know states first you know different cities then different states then different countries all of them will need to be integrated it's mostly like you know the evolution that you talked about you know that we understand you know darwinian concept but now we have to move from darwinian concept to mutualistic ngioa symbiosis we have to create models that are symbiotic and what i mean by ngioa is nations is government industries organizations and academia so we have to move from survival of the fittest to the mutualistic symbiosis fitness of the ecosystem yes exactly and for that we need to create that inclusive model but that integration needs to happen now the challenge that you and i and the whole world is witnessing right now is that countries cannot work together no countries we tried globalization we tried the global age it did not work and right now countries are going backwards they are going inwards nationalism Absolutely. is rising nationalism is rising so if nationalism is rising then you know the tribalism is going to go rise as well and when we are talking about a country like india where there are so many different languages spoken so many different you know uh, tribes races are there you know the challenges are going to emerge for india in many new complex ways not just hindu muslim but about you know every different state has its own language has its own you know race has its own tribe everyone is going to focus on the tribalism so how are we going to create such models that require strong integration strong collaboration how will we create how will we move forward the good question that maybe a trillion of trillion plus dollar question but i think i have a point of view on that though you know uh, that's why i use the word cellularism 
you know, one force of nature is that people feel comfortable in their comfort zones. That's why they call comfort zones. And if we move to a cellularism, let's say each village in India, let me take the Indian case, and the major effort by the prime minister of the country is not to build a huge airports, not to build uh, this corridor they're building between Delhi and Bombay, the high-speed train. These are, again, for the top 2%. But to work on creating each village a beautiful economic center, so that way people could still live in their communities, make sure each community has a chance to express the beauty of their community to the world. Mm -hmm. India provides the platform. Uh, uh, and the government provides the platform. And third, which is very important, that because I am different from you, I develop the ability to appreciate you, uh, appreciate the difference as opposed to look down on the difference. Now, what has happened, yes, uh, as you know, over the last, I would say almost thousand years, the fundamental thinking was as I mentioned earlier, zero-sum game. That if I win, you lose, then I got the bigger share of the pie. And the thinking was the pie is fixed, so we have to cut the pie in a way that I could get more of the pie than you, and then I dominate the process. I dictate how much you could use. I use as much as I could. Now, that is one theory, which is the theory, as I mentioned, survival of the fittest. But to make the shift of societies or species or nature survive when they collaborate each, with each other, that thinking has to be brought to the center stage. Mm -hmm. Collaborate, but allow independence, cellularism. Yes, they will feel comfortable in their own environment. Let people feel comfortable. Nothing wrong with that but let them not become enemies to another group of people who feels comfortable in a very different environment. If I like to eat rice, so be it. If you like to eat chapati, so be it. But we appreciate each other. I think we have to work on it. And I feel, to be honest with you, the more I, you are pushing the discussion how to, I feel India could be a great place to experiment uh, these new ideas because it is complex. If India follows the path it is following, you're absolutely right. It will get into tribalism. There'll be more segmentation. When I was in high school in India, there were 18 states. Now there are 29 states. So we are fragmented. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was, was in India, we went to a movie house. I remember my first movie was uh, acted by Nargis, Mother India. Mother India. And I remember that day in Calcutta, I was only three or four years old, maybe three years old. But what I still remember, as soon as the movie was over, Janaganamana was being played, the flag of India on the screen. Everyone stood up, mm -hmm. silence, no one is walking. The Janagana was over, then people started walking out. About 15 years ago, I was in a movie theater in Delhi. Yes, Janagana was played, but not a single person stood. They just walked out. Mm -hmm. So India 
is fragmenting. India is not showing any kind of ability to respect what the nation is all for. And that's why I think if we can promote the book that look, we have all the gems which are required to create the future, but it has to be very different from what we are doing today. Yes. Maybe we could begin a movement. Uh, and that's the movement I would like to work with you on, which I've been calling the reset, reset movement. No, I hear you. And I think that's a very noble movement to be on. And uh, yes, India could lead, lead their way. Now, the, the reason internet was created, and then after the internet, the social media that was created, was to bring all these different tribes on the you know platform, talk to each other, appreciate each other. That was the original goal of Facebook and all the social media that was created. That you know, yes, we are all different in how we look, in how we talk, what we eat, what we think, you know, how we think. All of this we have different, you know, we are different in every way, but we are all humans. Let's understand each other and let's, you know, build on that. That was the basic premise of the social media. But if you look at now, what has happened? Everyone, everyone is fighting with each other and everyone, instead of understanding and appreciating differences, you know, and diversity, they, we have reached a point where we are trying to cancel each other. That is so prevalent here in the United States. It is ideological, you know, it doesn't matter what race you are on or, you know, uh, what food you eat, you know, uh, political ideology that you believe in. Everyone is trying to cancel each other. And that is so dominating, you know, uh, with dominating viewpoint that we see here in the United States. And we don't see that yet in India. There is still limited, you know, uh, intolerance. If we see that is still focused only between Hindu, Hindus and Muslims. And that mm. also sometimes we can see that it's more political. Am I yeah. right? Or you think, you know, there is, you have more observation about India than me. No, I think you're right. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, first you're right about the United States. I feel so sorry that after country, after achieving so much in a very short period of time, if you look at uh, United States in 18, as late as 1870, when they were just coming out of tribalism between North and South, if you will, and then Abraham Lincoln was shot. And so by 1870, it was basically a tribal culture, North versus South, and fights and wars. Many people lost their lives in the, <clears throat> as you know, in the civil war that had in this country. But between 1870 to 1914, for only 44 years, this country became a major power in the world in only 44 years. And not only that, it gave birth to electricity, it gave birth to airplanes, it gave birth to penicillin, it gave birth to telecommunication and created the biggest steel company in the world, uh, Andrew Carnegie's US Steel. It's amazing what America achieved in the 44 years that I'm talking about. 
Then between the First World War and Second World War, again, the television, the radio, the electronics industry developed and the automotive industry developed. And then after the war, in addition to giving birth to United Nations, space travel, the man and the moon, everything was working so well. Unfortunately, see, this is the beauty of life. And that's why I give so much importance to the first point that as we develop mentally, physically, materialistically, unless the spiritual development is equally activated with equal amount, not as a separate activity, not to go, I'm not saying go to the church or go to the temple or go to the mosque. The spiritual life should be an integral part of our day-to-day life. That's the part you has missed. But when technology becomes so powerful and it is in hands of everyone in name of iPhone or smartphone, and then you can tweet whatever you feel like in name of freedom of speech, freedom of self-expression, you can have the gun to freedom to uh, protect yourself. That's why you create the gun. I mean, I find it's terrible. And every day there's someone, many people are getting shot, not one. So the country have missed out on the enlightened path through spirituality. And now, as you know, in India, there's a term called Koli Koli Yoga, you know. And I think what has happened that we have entered a very difficult period where we have been consumed by consumerism. Consumed by consumerism. What does it mean? That we are no longer thinking as much. We're not thinking about our conscience. We are just serving our lowest level instincts. Mm-hmm. Be it sex, be it taste, be it we want to drink more, we want to eat more, we want to uh, watch violent movies, sex movies. And that's how people's time is getting taken after all we have 24 hours so now time has come a country like united states we have to promote what next and next is not extension of materialism into the future uh, a rise of spiritualism where you can make the materialistic development more meaningful i'm not saying reject it but make it more meaningful whereas in a country like india where materialism is also not developed spiritualism we are losing India could say, okay, let's reset. Let's focus on what we are good at and let bring spiritualism in our day-to-day life. It's not Hinduism versus Islam versus Sikhism versus Christianity. We believe in one. You know, I, you've heard of Ram Krishna Dev, Vivekananda's guru. You know, he used to believe, he used to literally preach, I'm Christian, I'm Muslim, I'm Hindu, I'm everything, because there's only one God. And he used to say it in a very simple way. Ramakrishna, uh, the modern day India, perhaps is one of the biggest spiritual leaders. But then what I find interesting in India, Ramakrishna and Vivekananda is more known in the Eastern part than the Western part. And that's where I think India has failed you know, we should learn how to celebrate a person irrespective of whether he's from the east or the west or the north or the south, because they have to be from someplace. Uh, and wherever they are from, we should treat that individual as 
the individual of the Indian subcontinent. Yes. So I think that has to be worked on. And the final point I want to make, you know, as you know, Imran Khan uh, was ousted from Pakistan. And Imran, I have to know because of his cricket. I used to, I played cricket. Uh, you know, he was a big cricketer and the captain of the Pakistan team. And when he came into politics, I was hoping that he will bring a new spirit of camaraderie between India and Pakistan. Now, I think for Pakistan and India and Bangladesh, for that matter, is extremely important to recognize that 7,000 years of the development of the Indian subcontinent was in the banks of the rivers of Indus and the Gangetic Plain. And we got axed in these two backbones. If someone's backbone is axed in two places, that person can never stand up straight. Mm. So Indian subcontinent was axed in the Indus Valley, in the Gangetic Plain. So the leaders of these countries should bring that kind of romantic and spiritual thinking into discussion of the future of the country. That could this area survive with backbone axed in two places? Or could we think of the new subcontinent with a new vision, maybe broken up into small independent states like United States of America, we can call it United States of Bharat but come up with a new model. So I feel many ways we have to sit back, that's why I sat back and start thinking of the future with a new lens, whether we're talking about United States or whether we are talking about India. I think one thing also I want to highlight, Japan is one country which offers an interesting model. Because if you have, you have been to Japan, Jayastri? Uh, not yet, no. Okay, maybe I will arrange a trip for you to Japan. Uh, Japan has brought in the Vedic philosophy into day-to-day -day life of Japanese life very naturally. You know, they always bow down, they're always humble. They do not recite the Vedic mantras, but they practice it, which Vivekananda used to talk about karma yoga. They are practicing it every day, and yet they've integrated different aspects of Western life. So Japan, you do see a little bit of integration of philosophical, spiritual side of life with the materialist side of life. That's one thing which attracted me a lot towards Japan. The book talks about Japan a lot, uh, that maybe there's something we could work with the revive the Japan model because unfortunately last 30 years economically Japan has not done well but spiritually Japan is excellent you hardly hear of any violence you you see everyone is at peace with each other the gap and between rich and poor is extremely small everyone looks well fed well dressed comfortable mm -hmm. so Japan is a model uh, you know, so I think there are some, uh, you know, small locations here and there, Japan, Bhutan, uh, Norway, Norway, Northern Norway, Sweden, where the happiness index is very, very high, uh, we could use as models. 
Yes, yes. No, I mean, you are right. It, is, it doesn't matter which country we live in, which country we are talking about. Every country has so far focused and are aggressively pursuing uh, the materialism, you know, the need, the competitiveness is all about um, material things, you know, that how to increase the GDP, how to make more money, how to beat other countries in technology, how to uh, beat other countries in uh, developing systems and how to uh, get their systems and models in place so that uh, they benefit from that, irrespective of whether it's a financial system or, uh, you know, any other system we talk about, uh, the digital systems that we are developing, you know, every country mm. is focused on that. There is no country who is looking inwards, looking at thinking about whether, you know, how, if we have to, if the our planet is at risk, if we have to become multiplanetary species, what are the things we will need to develop? Most important is, you know, understanding us, you know, who we are, going inwards, understanding, increasing our consciousness, becoming more aware of our consciousness and integrating all the different components that requires us to get a better, that increases our ability to understand the universe in a much better manner is so very essential. We have to take our journey inwards. The schools and education system are not going to teach us, you know, how to live, what is our purpose? That is where I think we need to focus on. And India has a unique opportunity to take a lead based on all the advances, the ancient India, you know, has achieved, it, it is possible for India to build on that and spread the message of Vedas and Upanishads. Not only that, redevelop all the technologies that are documented in our Vedas, in our ancient scriptures, and that would help us solve some of the problems facing humanity today. So there is a lot of work that needs to be done, first, of, first and foremost, there is a lot of effort that is required to understand the true message of the Vedas and Upanishads and all of our scriptures. This is not about religion. This is about spirituality, where we need to focus. And that, for that, we all need to come together. It, I'm talking about the Indian Vedic scriptures and Indian you know, Vedas and all. It is possible that in other countries, in other traditional, there has... Also, some lot of advances uh, must have happened. Absolutely. So we have to we have to focus on each of these countries and look at you know where the knowledge is. Compile all the knowledge, compile all that has been already achieved. We have to break the silos, and that is the first step probably we can take, and then we can build on that and solve all the problems facing humanity. There's a lot more I can ask you, you know, Professor Ghosh, there is so much that we can uh, discuss, but these, we have to take these basic steps before we can build on that. So having said that, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners about how they can, 
you know, uh, get a copy of your book and how they can uh, reach out to you if they want to, you know, translate your message that you have given in your book to any of that initiative or, you know, if any country's decision makers want to talk to you, how they can reach out to you, if you can share that. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. And this as we come to the close. Now, the book is very easy to find. It's uh, the name of the book, as you know, India Towards 100. A Call for Reset is available on Amazon. So you could always, uh, well, I know the book is available in Amazon and it's selling very well. So I hope more and more people will become familiar with the thoughts of the book. And in the process, uh, we can all begin the movement together. Uh, my email is parthasg at aol.com. I would very much welcome inputs, suggestions, ideas, suggestions so that you and I could uh, begin this movement. You know, we are having a, another session on the book with some other thought leaders who would uh, comment on the book. Uh, it's on May 8th at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning Eastern Standard Time, which is a Sunday. So if you're in, in uh, Texas, it would be nine o'clock in the morning. If you're in the Pacific coast, it would be at seven o'clock in the morning. And people who are in India, it would be 7.30 in the evening of Sunday, which so happens to be the Rabindranath Tego's birthday, as well as my birthday. I just oh, want to let you know. <laughs> so it would be a great day, I hope, uh, where we could take another step forward. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Partha, for participating in this roundup today. And I am sure that all of our global viewers and listeners who would watch these, you know, read about it or listen to it, I'm sure, you know, some of them, some or, you know, a lot of them would reach out to you uh, to communicate and, you know, to develop some uh, uh, pathways that you can, they can work with you on this. So thank you so much. Uh, and uh, your thoughtful insight on India Towards 100 is definitely going to help India and India's decision makers. So um, as a result, this risk roundup, I think, has been of service, and we thank you for that. So thank risk you. group, thank you so much. Risk group is a strategic security risk research platform and community. Through the risk roundup initiative, risk group and I are on a mission to talk with a billion brilliant minds. The reason behind this effort is to research, review, rate, and report strategic security risk facing humanity. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you so much. Thank you.